Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be reading an article from the site called Faith, A Brief Defense. Now, I came across a number of people who were focusing exclusively on reason to the exclusion of faith, so I wrote this article in response. However, afterwards, I found a bunch of people who were rejecting reason in uh, and preferring faith instead. So, I wrote another one that follows up on this one that defends reason. Um, I find it extraordinarily funny that after releasing the Faith and Reason article, they've uh, got exactly the same amount of reads, um, identical, down to the <laughs> down to the individual readers. Somehow they they evened out, which I like because that's the way it should be. We should view Faith and Reason on the same um, on the same level. One is not far above the other. Um, both are indeed necessary. Yes, faith touches on higher things. And this article actually shows it also touches on basic things. But reason is one of the chief reasons that we are um, we are called made in the image of God, because God himself is, um, is reasonable. Um, reason flows from God's very nature. Christ himself is called the Logos. But I'm getting carried away. That's another article. Instead, we're going to be focusing on faith. Let's begin. In G.K. Chesterton's famous book, Orthodoxy, he speaks of a type of madness that can inhabit one's mind. He compares it to a circle, which is simultaneously infinite and quite small. A madman might think everyone he meets is a government agent. Of course they will deny it, because that's exactly what an agent would do. Or maybe a madman thinks he is Jesus. Surely he will be rejected and disbelieved, but wasn't Jesus also? One of Chesterton's most famous lines is, a madman is not someone who has lost his reason. He is someone who has lost everything except his reason. As anyone who is a family member or friend waiting hip-deep in conspiracy theories recognizes, arguing them is like punching at the wind. Every jab has a response which is coherent in its small, circular insanity, and yet utterly unconvincing to those who witness the world with clearer vision. The puzzle is, how do we exit these circles of insanity? What would one say to a person suffering from a deep solipsistic conviction who therefore believes they alone exist? Chesterton gives an answer, and if you haven't read it, you really should. Here, we'll put it simply. To leave the circle takes faith, and not just reason. Reformed epistemologists talk about properly basic beliefs. For them, these may include truths like one's own existence, or the existence of other minds, even the existence of God. To them, these are so readily apparent to a healthy and properly functioning mind that they can be immediately seen for the truths that they are. Other philosophical traditions call such apparent truths seemings or first principles. Regular people, when told that some people debate whether or not other minds exist, squint their eyes and wonder what kind of moron would deny such a reality. Maybe that philosopher's mind doesn't exist. I contend that whatever is going on, which gives ordinary people and philosophers alike a clear and unassailable witness of the truth, is faith. When I say that I'm correct that A equals A and non-A does not equal A, I am correct. And it doesn't require an argument. Even if it did, I couldn't possibly make an argument to prove these statements without assuming them first. Even the use of words relies on the fact that words have definitions, and the definitions equal the world, the word thereby assuming the first statement, A equals A, is truth. As soon as someone sees and understands A equals A, it is seen as true. Logic is a means to get to the truth, but here the truth is readily presented. 
It is not that logic is subordinated, or worse, violated by this process. Only with this as the context do I believe the matter of faith should be addressed. Too often faith is described in flowery, flowery and vague language. Atheists in particular have a keen sense for when Christians don't really know what they're talking about. Whenever faith versus reason comes up, they smell blood in the water. I don't say this to bash other Christians, nor to exalt my own understanding. After all, I learned most of this by opening up an $11 catechism that I bought on Amazon. Here is how I would describe faith. Yes, using flowers in my example, but trying not to be vague. If the possession of truth is like having a beautiful garden, reason is like planting things as seeds and then watering, tending, trimming, and arranging until things grow and build on themselves to become beautiful. Faith is like having fully grown plants transplanted directly into the garden. Would the first gardener deny the second garden is beautiful simply because they didn't go through the process of cultivating the plants? Worse yet, would he deny that they could both be growing the same types of plants just because one was slowly tended and the other transplanted? Of course not. Both arrived at the same beautiful garden and successfully reached their end. Maybe the first gardener watches the second receive their delivery of full-grown plants and scoffs, I don't just receive my plants, I grow them myself. But does he? That gardener was given seeds. If he had not chosen to accept the seeds as a gift, he could grow nothing. Sure, the seeds might be small in the Garden of Reason, but that said, A equals A, or non-A does not equal to A, is also small. The knowledge that other minds exists is small, and the principle of sufficient reason is small too. And yet, with proper care, the Church acknowledges that mankind can, in fact, come to the knowledge of God's existence from reason alone. At that point, reason doesn't stop any more than a gardener stops gardening because they have some blooms. Instead, the possibility of transplanting new and beautiful plants begins. This leads to revelation, the giving of truth by he who is truth. So I hope you understood that uh, analogy. I do intend to actually go back and um, beef that up a bit. Um, a fellow who's a professional philosopher read this article, really liked it, and um, had a few suggestions, which I never got around to implement. Um, but I hope you see the comparison there that I'm comparing the being given um, large full-grown plants as accepting things like, say, the Trinity, a large doctrine, which is beautiful, which is given to us, and then we accept. And I'm comparing that process to being given the seeds which begin the process of gardening, like um, I exist, or um, other minds exist, or uh, basic uh, axiomatic truths and reasons, stuff like that. So in both cases, you're given something. And in both cases, you're expected to tend it. And the tending is the job of reason. That's where we slowly build things up. We, um, we extract truths and um, we, we, um, you know, we do the hard work of um, trying to come to understand things. We're not just um, given them. Okay, um, I think this has a pretty lengthy objection and answer section. So here we go. The first objection is, the doctrine of the Trinity is a, quote, revealed truth. Would you say there is rational evidence to believe the Trinity or not? If you say that there is not, then you've proved my point that there is indeed a conflict between faith and reason. If you say that there is enough rational evidence to believe this doctrine, then your position collapses into reason, and hence faith becomes unnecessary. Answer. I might ask how you were defining rational evidence. If you define it as anything that can make holding a position sufficiently justifiable, 
then you have defined it far too broadly. It would encompass both faith and reason. Therefore, your dilemma would not be addressing the question of faith at all. In fact, you may be smuggling your conclusion into your first premise. You assume from the onset that only reason can give someone justification for belief, and lo and behold, that becomes your conclusion. Maybe you are not defining rational evidence so broadly. Here, I will assume that rational means that which uses reason. In this case, I offer my initial example, A equals A. This is not arrived at by reason, but rather is assumed by reason so the rational process can get off the ground. If this is what you mean by, quote, a conflict between faith and reason, then I ask you, where is the conflict? Instead, it seems that at the core of reality, there is a cooperation of the two, both the rational and that which is seen to be true using a properly functioning intellect, which happens to be my definition of faith. And I, I hope you caught that. We have one other answer coming up, so let me just um, explain this one a little bit further. You'll probably hear this as an objection a lot when you um, talk to people who disregard faith. They, they want to they create a dilemma, but I think it's a false dilemma. They say either you're rational in believing in something or um, it's irrational. If it's irrational, well, then sure, you can call that faith, but it's just a little fantasy world. So therefore, the only reasonable way to know things is um, by using reason, not your faith idea. And, and that's... Um, what I'm taking issue with. Just describing something as rational evidence and assuming that that is the, um, the sum total of all ways that one could come to believe in something is just smuggling your conclusion into your premise. And I offer that counter example of A equals A. You don't arrive at that at the end of a deductive process. You assume that from the beginning. So there's already things outside of this tent. Um, I hope that made sense. But even if it didn't, we have another answer. Your dilemma offers two categories, rational and not rational. It is true that faith is not reason. This, however, does not mean that it is irrational or in violation of what is rational. If you could prove a revealed doctrine is irrational, then there would be a problem for the theist. However, simply saying that faith is not the same as reason is just an obvious fact, and that has no bearing on the discussion of whether or not both ought to be used in the pursuit of truth. And there I, I basically lay out that there's a difference between being not a reason and being contra reason. Our claim is that faith and reason are a cooperative and at the very core of reality are cooperative. Um, and although they are distinct, yeah, sure. Um, that's the whole point. <laughs> they, um, they're not in conflict. Just because things are distinct does not mean that they're in conflict. Okay, next objection. Putting simple truths like the principle of identity or the principle of non-contradiction in the same category as doctrines like the Trinity or the Incarnation seems to be an arbitrary grouping. Yes, you can defend the first truths, but that doesn't entail that you are doing anything to defend the second. Either defend those revealed truths or prove they belong in the same category as those obvious first principles. Answer. My argument is from within the classical theistic tradition. If no God existed, then truths would be arbitrary or, subject or subjective, because no non-contingent being could ground them. Further, if such a reality could exist, truths could go out of existence when whatever contingent being went out of existence. In such a reality, neither of us have any warrant to reasonably believe the truth of almost anything, nor a good reason to assume our reason is aimed towards truth in the first place. 
Descartes found that only by recognizing the existence of God can one pull themselves out of system, uh, systematic skepticism and the ensuing shrinking circles of insanity found in solipsism. If you want an argument from outside of theism and inside of an atheist worldview for faith, I can't do it. The interesting th part is, neither could I give you a compelling argument for reason from within the atheist view. If, however, we grant classical theism, the odds of revelation now appear quite high. Given the classic attributes entailed by philosophical reflection on his non-contingency, absolute actuality, unbounded existence, and universal causality, we can conclude intelligence, will, goodness, and love, just to name a few qualities. If God intentionally, lovingly created creatures that are capable and interested in knowing truths about himself, would it be too big of a leap to assume that he would then tell them these truths? Wouldn't God, who created the desire in mankind to know him, also make himself known to his creation? Once in algebra class, my high school teacher shocked us students by telling us, while there are rules and precise steps that we had to, to learn to factor polynomials, to begin, we had to guess a number to start factoring with. But how do we guess it? All of math thus far seemed so rational and structured, but here it broke from the norm. To proceed, we simply choose a number? While I'm sure that some mathematician has a formula to make this unnecessary, nevertheless, this illustrates how there are times when our reason reaches a limit. To go on, it must take a kind of leap. This leap is, as my catechism puts it, by no means, by no means, a blind impulse of the mind. Some students were better and others worse at choosing a number. The very fact that one could be good at such a task means that there was a truth that their minds were approximating. The students will know for sure as they continue to advance logically through the problem. With the Trinity, one is asked to make a leap. That leap is not a guess about the Trinity, but rather to trust what has been seen and recognized as true. Faith is choosing and using the truth so that one can further understand reality. In this case, such revelation absolutely belongs within those truths. Each is the sliver of the truth himself, God. Each is grounded in God as the trueness, as a fullness of being, and thus grounded in truth. Each is chosen and used for the further investigation of reality, not by a blind impulse of the mind, but rather by trusting the witness of our truth-seeking faculties, which are ordered towards truth proximately and God ultimately. There is a lot in there. Uh, let's see if I can go back and kind of clarify further. Sometimes it's easier to read it because you can slow down and reread than just to listen to something that's admittedly a wee bit dense, um, just all in one shot. So one of the arguments is when you make an objection, um, uh, which I can read the objection once more, putting simple truths like the principle of identity or non-contradiction in the same category as the Trinity or the Incarnation seems like an arbitrary grouping. Yes, you can defend the first, but that doesn't entail that you can defend the second. So um, I'm trying to explain that these aren't, in fact, arbitrary groupings because... Oof, there's so much backed in here. One, because truth is made true by a non-contingent being. Um, next, because... Uh, and part of that is... Well... Part of that, of course, assumes a theistic worldview, 
But earlier on in, the, in this defense, I talk about how if we don't do that and we assume an atheistic worldview, well, then there isn't a ground for reason or faith. And there's no good reason to believe that our intellects are oriented towards truths which are, are more than just um, beneficial to survival. So the only way that we can have this discussion is within a theistic worldview. And that might sound like, well, that's not fair to just assume this from an onset, but it is because the objector is objecting to the coherence of a theistic view. Um, there's many ways to object against um, somebody's worldview. One can say that what initially grounds it is false. One could say that they can prove something which um, is contradictory. And another is to just say that it doesn't cohere inside of its own uh, system. And that's what they would say about faith. There's, they would say that our ideas about reason don't cohere with our ideas about faith. Um, and yeah, you know what? I think you're going to have to read this one again, guys, if, if you didn't quite catch it, because I don't want to reiterate the entire thing. Um, I will if you like, but, um, but I can't hear you. This is a one-sided conversation, so I will move on to the objection. I don't think I can say it much better um, than I just read it. Um, the next objection is, um, if what you say were true, then everybody would agree. Uh, no one disagrees that A equals A, but billions of people disagree that Jesus is God or any of these other so-called revealed truths. Answer. I would say that as soon as the terms are understood in the following statement, the truth is readily apparent. And here's the statement. The sum of the internal angles of a dodecahedron is five times that of the sum of its external angles. Now walk down the street and ask people whether that is true or false. Truth is not determined by vote. Even if it were, the vast majority of people who have ever lived would certainly believe in some sort of faith, as it it's an extension of their near-unanimous belief in God. So there you go. There's examples of things which are true, and actually true by definition, which aren't apparent. Um, so it's totally possible that um, one, can, one can reject that the sum of the internal angles of a dodecahedron is five times the sum of its external angles. And um, yeah, that has no bearing on... on, on if we just polled people, we wouldn't know if that was true or not. We would have to examine that one and understand um, what's going on in that statement to know that it's it's true. And once we did, we'd realize that it's it's true by definition. Um, yes. Yeah, so the objection that people would all agree if there's such things as as revealed truths, I don't think holds. Simply, people didn't have those truths revealed to them. But here's another answer to the same objection. Simply put. What makes you think God would automatically and universally give identical and irresistible persuasive revelations of himself to every person? There are many truths people don't share universally, and yet this has no bearing on their truth value. And the next answer to the same question is, the Christian answer is an incarnational one, where the sacrament of baptism installs eyes of faith which can witness God directly. Not only is the Christian notion of faith embedded in theism, but also in Christian doctrine. Therefore, it comes as no surprise that it may not function in a non-Christian worldview coherently. That, however, does nothing to disprove the faith because it is fully coherent inside of its native context, and that context has independent reasons for its validity. And, of course, this could be explained further in, in an apologetic context. All right, I do think that was pretty brief. We're just running about on uh, 20 minutes 
Um, so I wanted to touch on some of the, the big points in case you didn't catch them. Oftentimes, faith is viewed as a blind leap. Um, that comes from the philosopher Kierkegaard. We as Catholics reject that. In fact, the Catechism, as I read earlier, says it's by no means a blind impulse of the mind. Instead, faith is um, the opening of the eyes of the heart and mind. That's what the Catechism says, such that we can see God directly. God is truth, and see the um, argument on the fourth way. Um, because he's absolute, unbounded, pure, active existence, and truth is just um, derivative of things which um, things which are ex- which exist. God ultimately is the cause of all truth. So when we witness God, um, we can understand truth. And the ways in which he reveals himself to us are the ways in which we see true things about him, ourselves, and the world. So divine revelation is a subject of faith because divine revelation is the divine one revealing himself. Um, now, I think that the, the Logos, Christ, um, has revealed himself at least partially to all of us, and we can access this by, by, um, by reason. Um, when we talked about those just early truths which seem self-evident, that's a way that all people, just because they're made in the image of God, have some type of touch of, um, of what truth is, at least enough of a revelation of God to begin to pursue him, to just start that process. Uh, we're not left in extreme skepticism, uh, nor are we just the, um, the blank slate with absolutely no ideas and no ability to, um, um, to begin a logical process of inquiry. We kind of have a built-in um, firmware which orients us towards truth if we follow it. Um, and in that sense, divine re- revelation occurs at the beginning of our, um, of our search for God and at the end. The beginning because we need those axiomatic principles to start and at the end because the greatest and highest things like understanding the Trinity and the Incarnation are just farther than our minds can, can reach. Um, faith is um, propelling us to places where we couldn't go with reason alone. It's, it's where reason runs out, where it can't quite, it can't quite get to. Um, it's like if, if reason was the ability to run, faith would be hailing a taxi. It, it still does, in general, the same thing. It gets you to a destination, in this case, truth. But one of them, it just carries you away. And the other one is a, a slow plodding along. So for this reason, I don't think they're at all in conflict, but we'll learn more about that in the, um, in the one on reason. Um, this one, I, I tried to be very charitable to the people who would reject faith. I tried to explain the Catholic position, uh, answer objections. Most of the article actually was covering those objections. Um, the next article's not as nice, so <laughs> be forewarned. If you aren't a theist, if you aren't a Christian and you reject faith, like, sure, I get it. You haven't accepted divine revelation. You may not have even been baptized. Therefore, you can't um, open your eyes of the heart and mind um, because you have not had those installed yet in the sacrament of baptism. So I really don't hold it against you if you reject faith. However, if you are in fact a Christian and you reject reason, oh, I have much harsher words um, in no small part, because you then make the entire faith look foolish and um, 
that doesn't make me happy. So next time's a little bit meaner, um, but I think it's still good. And um, I hope you listen to both of these episodes to kind of get a balanced view of it. And I think we have ample time for the mailbag, so let's hit a few questions. First question, is it actually okay to wear socks with sandals? Can it be done? First, of course, it can be done. I've done it myself on many occasions. And secondly, yes, it it should be done if one desires to. There's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, doing such a thing. I think socks, um, they're a utilitarian kind of thing. Um, They're made to make your feet comfortable and dry and all sorts of things. They work great in a sandal for exactly that purpose. So I'm fine with wearing socks with sandals. Now, your significant other may believe that this is ridiculous or insulting to fashion. But, um, you know, you're just going to have to make that judgment if that type of condemnation is worth it. Um, Now, if it's not your significant other yet, it's just some random person who's commenting on your fashion, you need to give much thought to whether or not you want that negativity in your life. All right, next question. What color should I paint my living room? Hmm. Well, you might think that... um, I wouldn't be able to render an opinion on this, but I render an opinion on all sorts of things that I'm not qualified for. I've never seen your living room, and I don't know what else is in there. So here's what I will say. Choose a bold, bold color and paint it with stripes. Because when you tell somebody that I painted my living room, the first thing they do is they look around. And a lot of them Look for those mistakes where you hit the trim or where you dripped on the floor and you go, oh, yeah, I see it kind of hit the ceiling there. You don't want that. Instead, you want to do an interior design flex, the stripe. Use a level, um, run some tape along the wall, whatever you do to make the stripes. And when you say, I painted these perfect stripes on my wall, that's just, that's impressive. That will blow anybody away. And it's fun. It's interesting. It makes your your walls look different from your friend's walls. And if you're in between two different colors, it's okay. You can use them both. So it makes choosing colors easier. If you want a specific color, let's see, what color is my living room? I think it's blue. There you go. Choose blue. All right. Next question. Oh, we have another one about paint. So let's do that. We have a theme going. Very short theme. Only two questions, but that's okay. Um, why are some fire hydrants and fire trucks painted lime green, um, as opposed to red? Well, this might get me, um, this might get me a little fired up, if you will. There was a study a while ago that found that of all colors, the human eye seems to detect lime green the best. So these very much reductionist, silly people decided, therefore, they should paint fire hydrants and fire trucks, lime green. The problem with this is that it ignores the rest of reality. It's just a very rationalistic, reductionistic, anti-traditional, scientistic, I don't know. Can I have come up with more pejoratives? Maybe not, but you can fill those in. If you know anything about fire hydrants, they're commonly put with a backdrop of grass which is green. So even if it was true that a lime green color is more visible to the naked eye than a red color, yeah, whatever, um, try it against a green background, and I can almost guarantee you that the red one will will stand out. In fact, um, after this whole study came out and it was this, you know, in vogue thing to, to paint 
fire equipment, uh, this color, a bunch had trouble finding these, and uh, they went back and they painted them red again. And more people need to go back and paint it red. Um, kind of reminds me about the the metric system versus the imperial, uh, imperial system. It's been proven in a number of studies that people can estimate distances and weights better in the imperial system than in the metric system. And that's because one system was just kind of dreamed up in the minds of scientists, and the other one was um, kind of organically rose out of just common use, and it, it it's more rooted in the human person. Um, I'd love to find this particular study because I've only heard about it, but it said that when your average person is told to imagine just an unspecified amount of weight in their hand, they all whether they grew up in a metric or a standard system, imagine approximately one pound. It's just, that's a unit of weight in our minds. I know that took us away from the question, but the point is, sometimes things are traditional for a reason. Sometimes they just bubble out of um, society because they're legitimately useful. And when we think that we've come up with a, uh, a, uh, a better thing because it's the rational X, Y, and Z, Sometimes it's not. Um, to really tie it in, now that we're talking about reason, let's tie in Chesterton, who we talked about at the beginning of this article. He describes if you find a fence in the middle of the forest, you shouldn't tear it down because you don't know what it's keeping out or what it's keeping in. I think that uh, red fire hydrants are a good example of Chesterton's fence. They're all red. They're probably all red for a reason. So don't repaint the fire hydrants. Okay, next one, next one. Ooh, this one might be controversial, but I'll answer it anyway. Does one gender drive better than the other? You know, I remember, I don't know, 90s, 2000s, there was a lot of hate on women drivers. I don't really hear that anymore. Maybe that's just because the feminism has stomped off, has stomped out such speech, could be. But... The insurance data that I have heard on this topic seems to indicate that women have many more small, inexpensive accidents. They're more likely to get into a, a small fender bender, to hit a shopping cart, to do those kind of things. And men are more likely to have catastrophic, um, expensive incidents, though it's more infrequent than the type of accidents that women have. I'm not entirely sure um, what ends up being more expensive. And I wouldn't suggest that we should look at expense to determine who is, um, who's a better driver because that's less rooted in how good of a driver you are and more rooted in like the cost of repair or the cost of the particular trades to fix an automobile. I don't think that's particularly relevant. So you can decide whether you want to name women better drivers because they don't get carried away. And I don't know, um, in slightly damp conditions, slide off of a of a fantastic S corner um, backwards through a ditch and into a soybean field, like uh, like your favorite podcaster may have, um, or if you know the other gender is is the better driver, you can determine that yourself. But it seems that there is a a um, a difference in the way that we drive, as shown out in long scale large scale data. Oh, do 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 oh. That's too hard of a question. I'm not going to answer that one. We'll leave that one for later. Here we go. What is the right way to eat an Oreo? Um, well, I'll tell you the best way. You blend it with uh, vanilla ice cream 
or mint ice cream, coffee ice cream, or chocolate ice cream for that matter, a little bit of milk and turn it into an Oreo milkshake. That is certainly, you are raising the Oreo to a, to a much higher level, more exalted level in the great chain of being. That's undeniable. I suppose the second best way is with milk. Um, never buy an Oreo that is double stuffed for it is an abomination. Um, I think mint Oreos are okay. Any other filling other than classic or mint, also an abomination. Some people think the cream is the most important part, um, but some people are wrong. Um, it's called an Oreo cookie, not an Oreo cream. The thing that makes it the type of being that it is, is the cookie, of which there are two and only one layer of cream. So, um, yes, it, never buy a double stuffed. Um, it's all about the cookie part. Dipped in milk is very good. Again, it needs some type of milk with it. Um, eating them plain is absolutely not exciting, and I don't recommend it. So there you go. Um, if you're wondering if you should scrape the cream from the middle, I, I think that's entirely okay. If you want to scrape the cream out of the middle and throw it away, I think that's also okay. Um, there you go. Now you have all the Oreo cooking eating tips you could ever need. Um, we'll end on this last one here because it's probably going to take a little bit of thought and it deserves more than I'm going to address it here. Does the Bible condone slavery? The answer is yes, no, and not really. Yes, in that there are provisions for slavery in the Bible. No, in that if by slavery you're thinking like American slavery where we purchase slaves from um, Africa and then brought them over and had a hereditary group of slaves. Um, oh no, <laughs> absolutely not. And kind of in that you could define, say, indentured servitude as slavery. You could even define uh, modern institutions as slavery. Uh, for instance, by a biblical definition, anybody who joins the American military today would be a slave because they cannot leave, um, if you desert from the military, that's actually can be the death penalty. So you have to be there. Uh, you have no defined working hours. Um, you have to do whatever your superior tells you. And you are provided like room and board and housing and stuff guaranteed. Um, you might object, but yes, it's not hereditary. Yeah, it's not in the Bible either. They have the Jubilee years where everybody is, is, um, is granted freedom and a number of other provisions. So, um, yeah, the Bible, uh, people from, um, people from Old Testament times would look at our society and say that we include slavery. However, we would respond by saying, no, not really. A, that's voluntary. Um, second, these aren't like slaves as if they're like some type of low rung on our societal ladder. They're actually extremely honored people and we really respect what they've done. And they would respond okay, bro, you do know in our culture, slavery is voluntary also. Did you not get the memo? Um, yeah, us too. And also, slaves can still be extraordinarily honored. Did you forget Joseph from the Old Testament? He was a slave and the master of all the affairs in Potiphar's house. Um, he was an honored position. There's plenty of honored slaves in the, in the Bible. So, a lot of this is people don't know what the word slave means in the Old Testament. People don't get that whole thing. It's a lot more like, in some cases, being a salaried worker. And in other cases, it's kind of like being adopted. And 
it's also crossed with some type of crazy bankruptcy <laughs> laws. So yeah, that's how it goes there. When people kind of throw it in your face, oh, the Bible supports slavery, look at your evil book, blah, 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 blah. Rest assured, they don't know anything that they're talking about. And I always reveal that to them by saying, all right, so you're, you know about slavery in the Bible. Fantastic. Sounds like you're oh so learned, great Bible scholar. Um, let me describe an, a scenario. And uh, if you know anything about slavery um, in the Bible, you'll be able to tell me what happens next. So here we go. Um, somebody goes, uh, captures somebody, forces them to be their slave, um, brings them back. Um, they're their slave. Um, okay, what happens next? I've never had anybody be able to answer it correctly. They always go, uh, I don't know. They have to work for them. Or, oh, I don't know. They, they have to do like a sacrifice. I respond, well, the person who forced them to become a slave is buried up to their neck in sand. And then the people from the town come out with stones and they throw stones at the person's head until they die because the penalty for forcing somebody into slavery is being stoned to death. So if you want to know what the Bible would, would say about um, the American self-slaving self, uh, efforts, they would say that anybody who forced anybody into sl slavery needs to be buried up to their neck and pelted with rocks until their little head breaks open and they die. Um, yeah, that's very different from what we think of. Um, we're going to call it a day right there, guys. If you have a question, send it into thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. I have no filter. I will answer anything so long as it's not like, you know, explicit or awful or, you know what? Send it anyway. Uh, just nothing explicit or something. You get the picture. I'll answer lots of questions. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, and if you have friends, and if you like sharing, share it with your friends. If you didn't enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies. And I'll see you next time.